This is Lizzie Othiel, Vision Movement, and Israel is still engaged in a war against Hamas for almost a month and a half. And I'm sitting here in Jerusalem with Rabbi Huda Cohen. Hi. And we have a very interesting guest for this episode. Ariel Avidar is a former United States intelligence official, having served as a CIA case officer for over a decade. He's also worked in the U.S. defense industry and was formerly a U.S. diplomat. Ariel Avidar, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Lizzie. Thank you, Yehuda. Great to be here. Great to have you, Ariel. Um, now, for those listeners unfamiliar with what a CIA case officer does, according to the CIA website itself, their job is to clandestinely spot, assess, develop, recruit, and handle non-U.S. citizens with access to foreign intelligence vital to U.S. foreign policy and national security decision makers. Now, that's what's written on the website, what a CIA case officer does. Yes. If I were to dumb that down, I'd say a case officer's job is to recruit and run spies for the U.S. in other countries, and that these spies are not meant to be U.S. citizens and are therefore not protected by the benefits of U.S. citizenship. And given that you're a former U.S. diplomat and CIA agent, and now you live here in Israel, um, and I'm told you spend your days studying Torah in Jerusalem and hold positions that are considered to be at odds with American regional interests, uh, you probably have quite a story to tell. Is there any part of your personal journey that you'd like to share with our listeners before we get started? Um, sure. So I, I guess I would like to add, I don't know if I would say at odds with, uh, with U.S. interests um, necessarily, but what, what I would like to explain, and many of us have gone through this in, in this generation, previous generations, is that oftentimes we will see in our lifetimes that countries can change significantly. And we see differences in policies from 10 years ago, 15 years ago, 100 years ago. And a lot, a lot of what I wanted to discuss when, when the two of you had graciously invited me here was to enlighten a lot of American Jewry and a lot of Israelis as well that the United States is not the United States that we may have thought about 40 years ago, 50 years ago. Now. That, that doesn't necessarily mean that we're at odds in any way with the United States, but we should understand that things are different and in the future things are going to be very different. Now, of course, I'm not the only voice to, to explain this. I know there are others who, who I don't want to say warn, warn is a strong word, but at least want to inform the, like I said, the Israeli public, the American Jewish public, that there are differences and we're not living in the old days where we had blanket American public support. We're not living in the old days, and maybe Biden, we were, we'll get into this, Biden is a throwback, even though, of course, he is on the side of the spectrum that is not as heavily, we would say Democrats are usually not as in favor and in supportive of Israel. But 40, 50 years ago, which is, again, Biden is, is up there, when he was around, uh, during his time, bipartisan Israel support was, was pretty common. Yeah, I'm going to throw out a radical suggestion here. My perspective is that the United States was never what we would call on Israel's side. I think the U.S. has always been on the side of the U.S. and that sometimes that can be expressed in a way that appears pro-Israel. Sometimes that can be expressed in a way that appears pro-Palestinian or pro-Arab. Uh, just like when the British were here, when the British were occupying our land, they would do things that would appear to Arabs as pro-Zionists and things that would appear to the Jews as pro-Arab, but the British were really consistently pro-British, pro-British imperial interests, and I don't think the U.S. is any different. I, I do think that the American public has shifted quite a bit over the last couple of decades in terms of how they see this conflict, uh, and therefore there might be different pressures from below in terms of what a politician might feel coming from the voters. But I, in terms of the actual U.S. power structure, I just don't don't think anything has really changed significantly. That's, I, I would agree for the most part with that. With that, you would. Um, yes, the United States will look out for the United States' interest as well it should, and as as does every other country. Um, if we could sum it up, I would say for the most part, for the, over the past, again, this is making uh, large stretches and guesses, and it's a broad broad brush. But for the most part, the United States has seen Israel as the as less difficult, less of a problem than the Palestinians or the Arabs when the when the conflict was a little, little bit more more broad. 
um, whether you could relate to it as a democracy and whether you could relate to the people and the, and a lot of the ideals and the that the, the people hold. Well, I definitely think it's easier for the United States to relate to Israel in the way that Israel has presented themselves thus far on a global stage, meaning the messaging that we use to explain what we're doing here and the, you know, types of like you said, like viewing us as a democracy versus, you know, the Palestinians who I guess they don't really view as sharing the same type of values or, you know, potentially being cooperative to the kind of goals that America has in the Middle East. It does make more sense that they would have aligned themselves with Israel up until this point. I agree. I agree. I first wanted to touch on, you know, Israel's been at war with Hamas uh, since Hamas com committed a horrific massacre against us on October the 7th and took over 200 of our people as hostages into Gaza. Uh, did you have any thoughts on how Israel's been fighting this war or our government's wartime strategy? Sure. Um, in terms of the security, and we, we've, hear, we've heard many times, oh, there was a tremendous security failure. There was a tremendous intelligence failure that day. And I would say that that is com a complete understatement. When we say something failed, I think that means we expected it to go right. But when we talk about what happened that day, we literally had thousands of people, fighters, civilians, if we saw the videos, old people on bicycles, old men who were entering what should be one of the most secure borders in the entire world. It should be monitored. These things go without saying. We don't have to get into to the wall itself. But the fact that when Hamas came in, when the civilians, if we could call, when the other Gazans came in, when they entered, they came in with extensive plans. They said, we're going, as everybody knows, we're going to this kibbutz and we're going to that kibbutz. And when we go there, I think they had plans to take over and hold certain areas of the South. So if they were to make such a plan, say, for example, I said, Lizzie, tomorrow we're going to break into Fort Knox. Or for those who don't know what that is, we're going to break into the Knesset. Okay. Yehuda, come to but make sure you bring your toothbrush, bring a towel, bring something to make lunch. And you'll say to me, Ariel, excuse me, you plan to break into Fort Knox. You plan to break into the Knesset. What makes you think that you are so secure in your ability to get in that you could start planning for the next two weeks? So apparently, if you understand, see the, 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 the analogy there, apparently Hamas getting past the border and getting inside and coming and going in and back and forth and taking hostages at, at their free will for hours was already a given. They already knew that they could get in and they could get out. So that, that is not the result of a failed camera, of a failed system of the wall. That means that we have to worry, we as Israelis, we the Israeli public, we the Israeli, Israeli security system, we have to worry that our entire perception and our entire understanding of how secure our border, at least the southern border, but it makes us question everything, obviously. But we have to question what we have heard and what we've understood to this day. It could be a complete fallacy. Now, it could very well be that those, in the, not that it's intentional. It could very well be, well be, and probably is, that the security forces, the army, the intelligence agencies, they were for sure similarly shocked at what happened in the scale. But it seems like Hamas, and those in Gaza were not shocked because they had pre-planned coming in and doing extensive damage, extensive work, well beyond merely getting past the wall. Right. Um, and, you know, I've, I've heard from several different accounts that the soldiers stationed at the border of Gaza had been noticing for quite some time already before this attack happened that, you know, Hamas was actively planning something and there was actively, you know, something going on, taking notes, gathering intelligence and they pretty much were not able to respond in any capacity. So it requires an inquiry that goes without saying. But in terms of how we've responded, how do you think that's going? Do you think we're doing well? Do you think the messaging is good? Um, what do you think of this strategy that we're, we're taking? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So in order to, of course, the response is going to be very, very difficult. And, and the reason is, but we talk about Gaza, obviously, we're talking about ground warfare. We're talking about entering a city where every single corner, every block, every building is is a hazard. Um, we're talking about a place that has been ready and preparing for this 
for for decades. They've been waiting. Everything is going to be booby trapped, and there are going to be IEDs, and and they're they've been waiting this for this for a very long time. So this has to be, of course, very much tempered in terms of the response. Uh, so far, what they've done, from my understanding, is and from from what we've seen in the news, if they've pretty much cut Gaza in half and will isolate the north. To what degree they're inside the urban areas, I I don't think they're going to tell us. I can't imagine they're going to go in too deep again because there are examples of Fallujah and other other previous. And, and when the Americans were here, when the American generals were here, they came specifically to discuss um, the difficulties of of such urban warfare. Now, when we talk about other cities. None of those cities have very few cities have been entrenched like Gaza is. Gaza has been entrenched and waiting for this. Uh, so so far it seems so good, but I don't know if if they've really gone so far deep into the urban areas. Uh, I don't know if they if they will. Um, so that we'll have to see. Um, a second element when we start to discuss strategy is that we we could go over. We could say, well, if I were in BB situation, I would do X Y Z. But there are a lot of unknowns that that are very difficult for us to to understand. And what I would say is, for the most part. We don't know what goes on behind closed doors when the Americans come, when Blinken comes, and he may say, "Listen, if and, and there were reports about this, if you do this, we will stop X, Y, Z uh, widgets, bullets, um, armaments, and something that may be necessary." This is something we've seen the Americans do in the in the distant past, um, or maybe not so distant past with Obama. Um, obviously, with Kissinger, there's so similar stories about. Um, so it's it's very difficult to really say what we would do if we were in that situation and second and to second guess the military operations because we don't know what the pressures are in that sense. Right now, one thing I think that has become very clear is that from the Israeli perspective, this war is not about the hostages. Meaning that you know, had they taken three hostages or even ten hostages, we would really be. Agonizing over how do we get these hostages back? The war aim would be how do we get the hostages back? But I think by taking over 200 hostages, what Hamas essentially did was force Israel into a situation where we have to devalue the hostage, each hostage, meaning that we can't behave as if they have 240 Gilad Shalits. Meaning we can't be willing to pay the price that we paid for Gilad Shalit 240 times. Um, we basically have to make the hostages irrelevant because what we really need to do, and I think this is the thinking of our leadership right now, is we have to completely obliterate Hamas so they never take another hostage again, even if that costs us the hostages they have right now. That kind of brings me into my next question, which is about the hostages. You know, Hamas seems to be getting their asses handed to them in Gaza. So, what kind of leverage do you think these hostages give them at this point in time, given what Ravi Huda just? Pointed out about how Israel is going about dealing with them. Um, so, in terms of what's going on so far, and and what we 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 Israel have been doing to to Hamas, I would say we don't we don't really know, and the reason why is that every day on the news we'll hear, and it's it's for us the Israeli citizens, but it's also for Western consumption, and Israel the government is telling us we've taken out this many targets and 6,000 targets today and 8,000 tomorrow and we've used this much, much munitions but we don't know what that really means right if if I say to you Lizzie okay we're going to use uh, 3,000 today and you're going to save 5,000 tomorrow and we think we're successful but we don't know what that means what are they actually blowing up right now we're fighting against people but we don't have the numbers of the people that are being killed right the buildings and the sand if we sit and blow up sand all day how successful are we if we were getting a lot of images that seem to show success but i would say we don't really know it could very well be it is successful and I, i would hope it is but we don't really know now the leverage of the hostages this was their intent obviously um they said hamas they had marching orders to go and bring back hostages um to take to, to from what i heard all the different different accounts of course to to kill the men and take the women and children now of course when you start taking babies and you start to go to the level that they did with the atrocities and moreover because the atrocities we've heard such things believe it or not um if we for our generation maybe we haven't heard it as often but if you look back at the the massacres in Hebron and other massacres we've heard the, such things but what we haven't seen is the intentional broadcast of it the live stream putting it on tv intentional to show everyone and i think that more so put israel in a situation even more so than the hostages 
where Israel must act for its own public, for the political future of all of its leaders, uh, and even for the world, where they, they're put in a situation where they must act. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I think that the imagery really shocked a lot of Israeli society, really a lot of the world. But the point I was making earlier is that the sheer number, the the number of hostages took, makes it impossible for us to be willing to really negotiate for them at this point. Like they, they can, you know, maybe if they want to, you know, retreat out of the country and leave the hostages behind, we'll let them go. But I don't see, you know, I don't see us being willing to really stop this war until Hamas is destroyed, at least destroyed here in, in our country. Right. I would tend to agree. I think that at this point, like you pointed out, the just the sheer uh, trauma that the Israeli public has gone through based on how horrific the massacre actually was, Israel kind of needs to pursue like a really decisive victory here. And I think that, like we just discussed earlier, given how difficult urban warfare really is, it's harder to justify, you know, a ceasefire or a pause where we give Hamas time to actually like recoup and re-strategize when we're deep in Gaza and like carrying out a military campaign, even though there's such a large number of our people there. At this point, I don't know that like the Israeli government's hands seem to be a little bit tied in what they're actually willing to do. Mm -hmm. um, I, I would agree with that. And I would add to that, though, is we I don't think we've seen the, the, the worst of the fighting yet, unfortunately. Um, when we do have to go deep, and again, I could be wrong, right? We, we don't know exactly what is being published, how much is true. I would hope it's th that we're that there is some l level of uh, intentional manipulation by the Israeli government, by the Israeli military to, 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 to form the picture that they're putting out. But if in the next few weeks, God forbid, we should hear that every two days, every day, we, uh, we're, we have a personnel carrier, God forbid, again, with 15 soldiers in it, 20 soldiers. What if we start mounting uh, um, casualties on our side um, in, in very significant numbers? We can't forget in Lebanon, that's what started to, to happen. So we have to remember Gaza also, unlike areas in Yodan, Shamron, uh, what some people know as the West Bank, uh, those are relatively closed areas. So when you go fighting into Janine, they're going to be limited in terms of what they're going to to have access to the weaponry. But Gaza, as we know, has had access is able to be accessed from tunnels to Egypt. There are other ways to get much better machinery, much better weaponry into into the territory. Uh, so again, I, I I would love to be wrong on this, but it is very possible that we will have much uh, tougher days to come when we go deeper, deeper inside. Yeah, another part of this, and we've discussed this before on the show, is that Hamas fights Israel using anti-colonial tactics, meaning that because in the Palestinian narrative, the character of Israel is one of a settler colony, meaning the way the Palestinians and most of their supporters around the world view the state of Israel and Israelis as uh, a settler presence in Palestine, uh, that can be defeated by making the price of occupation more expensive than the benefits of exploitation. That's how we defeated the British in the 1940s. That's how the Algerians defeated the French. That's how the Afghans defeated the Americans. That's how many other countries in the global south have been able to rid themselves of their colonizers. And it's an effective strategy most of the time. The problem is we are not that we're actually not what they think we are in their movie and therefore when they attack us and use tactics based on their fantasy of us rather than who we really are their their tactics are really doomed to failure and that's what we see happening so even if they don't want to accept even if somebody wants to argue no the jewish people are not an indigenous people in this land we're not native to this land either way we self-identify as if we are we think we are we believe we are and therefore we fight as if we are. And when we feel threatened in the way that we do feel threatened right now, in the way that we did feel threatened on Simchat Torah and in the days afterwards, we'll fight like a native people that feels threatened but has superior firepower. And, and I think that one thing we have to understand, you know, we, we've spoken before about how, how violence is a language and what kind of violence is Israel using in this campaign? And is that the type of violence that can change who we are in the Palestinian narrative. Meaning when any oppressed people, when any colonized people fights their colonizer, part of their anti-colonial tactic is their own casualties. 
meaning how many Palestinians Israel kills from Hamas's perspective might actually be a benefit. Until now, Israel has been pursuing Hamas mercilessly. It's true, clearly, we've taken out a lot of Palestinian civilians in the course of doing so. Um, I know that now, because of the stage of the war we're at, Israel is able to make more humanitarian gestures than it was a couple of weeks ago. Israel's just more in a position now to make meaningful humanitarian gestures uh, for the Palestinian civilians. But even that, like even, you know, from the perspective of Hamas, I'm not even saying this critically. It was the same for the Algerians when they fought the French, you know, mounting casualties on the side of the colonized, on the side of the freedom fighters, is something that often forces the colonizer to confront certain contradictions in its own behavior and ultimately retreat. So that's not going to work on us. I, in fact, I think we have no choice at this point but to double down, even with international pressure. I think that might be Hamas's last card. I think that they might be hoping for some kind of international pressure on Israel if this conflict lasts longer than we expect it to, and that might save them. But I really think that at this point, Israel has no choice but to go all out until Hamas is erased from our country. Speaking of international pressure, I'm I'm curious, I know I probably have my own thoughts on this, but I'm very curious to hear yours. Do you think that there's a scenario where American or international pressure could actually save Hamas from Israel? Um, I, absolutely, I think there is. Um, and I would read that from our leadership. Before I get to that, I do, do want to touch just on one point that Yehuda made in terms of the, the power over that we as Israel have over Gaza and other areas, where literally, as we heard a few weeks ago when we were discussing energy and, and how much fuel they would have, in Gaza, and, and I want to just frame it in terms of other conflicts in the world, there are probably very few, or if any, where one side has such a dominant power over the other, meaning everything is in Israel's hands. Israel controls not only the security and the intelligence, we're talking about electric, water, they can flush a toilet, or turn on a light in Gaza without Israel's authorization. Now, money going in, everything that goes in, that goes out, it's completely in Israel's hands. If Israel wants to to, to literally wipe it out, it could do so. If, it, if Israel wants it, in, meaning if we took away the, the international pressure that we're discussing. So the international pressure is completely, probably the number one uh, goal that Hamas is re is ready to use. And I think so far we've seen it in historically with, with in the entire uh, Israel-Palestine conflict. And we've also seen it from Israeli leaders, particularly if we want to discuss Bibi, for example. Um, Bibi's pretty much his MO has been, and, and not to, to say it's good or bad, but obviously we're all um, uh, uh, the beneficiaries of it is, has been to keep the country economically successful. Uh, the global success that Israel has had goes without saying. Now, what is that based upon? It's it's based upon Bibi's work for, I would say, over 20 years of deciding that I'm going to keep these conflicts, whether it's in the South, whether it's in the North, whether it's Yudan Shomron, I'm going to keep these tolerable. I understand we will continue to be to suffer from it to some degree, but for the sake of economic stability, for the sake of moving the country forward and for the sake of our image. Now, again, what we saw a few weeks ago was was devastating in, in every regard, and it's putting Bibi in a position where he has to act a little bit more. But to be honest, what can happen is as time goes by, two weeks, four weeks, six weeks, eight weeks, people get tired. The press move on to something else. Uh, the mobilized soldiers get tired. And uh, even the consumers, the, the, the consumers in the United States, in Israel, those who are seeing the news nonstop, we get tired. So I could see a situation where using hostages, unfortunately, we're using because you said we have to go in and finish with Hamas. Everybody's saying that now. But when we get six months in and they start to trickle hostages out, will we start to hear a narrative of, well, maybe not destroy Hamas, but destroy Hamas's capabilities are pretty much negated. Uh, we've defeated this whole list of, of, of leaders. If anybody remembers from uh, the time of the Gulf War, we had a whole list, I'm sorry, of, of uh, before the, not the Gulf War, but with ISIS, we had a whole list um, of playing cards of these leaders were taken out and those leaders were taken, were taken out. Uh, and that was our measure of, of success, including George Bush coming and sitting, going in the aircraft, on the, on the aircraft carrier, I believe it was, uh, saying now we declare the end of hostilities. So 
a lot of it is is depends on how things can be framed, and they could be framed very, very uh, differently from what the reality is on the ground. Right,、um, but that could also work in our favor once we have a security presence in Gaza that the international community, you know, might want to see as temporary, but it's kind of you know reconciled itself to because Israel's there, Israel doesn't have an alternative. I mean, right now. You know, all of our security experts are desperate to find a solution other than Israel controlling Gaza and Israeli boots on the ground in Gaza. And there is no other solution. Meaning, the only way for us to be able to keep our country safe, especially the south of our country, is to have Gaza. Is for Gaza to be controlled fully by Israel. And maybe the security experts will find something that will kind of sort of work and close the gap between what we know we need and what the Americans are demanding. But what, what I assume will happen is we'll be on the ground. We'll say it's temporary. The press will move on, as you said, and we'll just stay there until、uh, I hope there's enough agitation for us to go back in and rebuild the Jewish communities that were destroyed in 2005. So we, what we've seen again with, with Bibi's mo is that could very well be what Yehuda just said. Well, very well could be the case, but in terms of the what BB says and what BB will eventually do is very difficult to to put those two together, and that's by that's by design and by intent. BB is a very savvy and has been a very savvy politician, and that's why he's been around for for a very long time. And his his mo often is to use、uh, plausible deniability, where he'll say, "Listen,、uh, Yehuda, I would love to. I promised you X Y Z not too long ago.、Uh, I would love to fulfill X Y Z." Just as I said, but now I have pressure from Lizzie to do so and so. So therefore, I can't do it. And、uh, right, you just replace the names with whether it's Gantz, whether it's the right wing, whether it's the Americans, whether it's so and so. So what Bibi says today, again, for this is not not to say it's anything、uh, conniving. This is just a, this is how politics. This is how how politicians operate.、Um, so we could hear today, and this is in our case what he's doing. I think with the Americans. Um, he knows that we need American military support, at least to this point,、um, in the for, for for weaponry. I would assume I don't have I'm not privy to any additional infor any information on that. But but we do need, of course, to some degree、uh, to replenish everything that we use. So he could say to the Americans, yes, yes, Blinken, I agree with everything you say. And then of course, come down the road when when the road is whether it's one year, two years, five years, they'll say, look, I said it then, I believed it then, I meant it then. However, X Y Z means I can't do so and so. And that's again、uh, to our benefit or to, to our detriment, depending on what side we're on. Right, that's very accurate. I think right now, I mean, we can all theorize about the direction that BB is heading in. I know I have my hopes about what he's going to eventually do, which is actually take responsibility for Gaza and you know reassure those residents of the communities that were really hit the worst by this that they can actually go safely home.、Um, But you're right. He does have to worry about、uh, the U.S. in this equation. So, speaking of the U.S. and their support,、um, when this whole thing first started to unfold,、um, the U.S. administration came out in like full booming support towards Israel、um, in its messaging and even sent warships to the region、um, in a move that like made a lot of Israelis feel that the U.S. you know has our back. So, how would you understand these moves by the Biden administration, and what do you think is actually motivating Washington's behavior here right now? Right. So that's that's actually an excellent question.、Um, and really, when we start to, to to look at this, to try to assess what are, what are, what are they up to, what does the United States want, what is their goal, right? So we have to look at different different elements of it. What are their concerns? What are their red lights? What, what's going on here? So I think,、um, as you accurately said. When it first, when this the war for, first broke out, and all of a sudden we see an aircraft carrier, two aircraft carriers, right? And I, 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 I spoke to some the, the native-born Israelis who said, "Wow, look at the the Americans! They're coming to support us again." But obviously, if you look a little bit deeper, you have to say, "What do I need an aircraft carrier for?" Right? Yehuda, come help me hammer in a nail, and you're going to bring a humongous saw. What's what's the relevance? Right? It's 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 a little bit overkill. So when we start to assess what are the, what are they bringing in these aircraft carriers carriers for? Now the first impression has to be okay. Well, we're at war with Hamas. We're in potentially a war with Hezbollah. So these aircraft carriers, which come of course with with with, with tons of war power, soldiers and all the ships that come with them. So we say, what are they coming? What are they here for? Now, frankly, a lot of the power that they bring is redundant. Right, and this we don't need additional aircraft in this case, which is very different. We should be thankful about this again to put everything into perspective.、Uh, don't forget, in this war, 
we don't have, and people will say otherwise, but we don't have the exist existential threat that we've had in the past. Hamas and Hezbollah combined to, to, to how many tanks and airplanes? Zero, right? Every other war or previous wars we've been in, we're go we had gone against countries that had aircraft and tanks, and these are bona fide armies. We're not dealing with the same things that we did, we did in the past. So the Israel has complete control of the of the of the skies and really to bring additional planes I, I don't i don't know what the benefit is there so other people have said well you know what uh and and sorry to just back on that point is also the u.s said they're not sending any troops inside now there have been rumors maybe they're gonna go in hostage uh, but but for the most part biden has said we're not putting troops on the ground um so the second thing you could say well maybe it's for iran maybe the the presence is for iran which is what we've also heard now there you would say, okay, well, if the presence is for Iran against two aircraft carriers, is a tremendous amount, then why not put it in the Straits of Hormuz? That's the first thing you have to, 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 to wonder. Put it next to Iran, put it closer, where you could actually, which would be the field that would be necessary. Now, keep in mind, in the previous American administration, when uh, when the Trump administration went and they, they publicly assassinated uh, Soleimani, who was a very, very popular uh iranian general uh in front of everyone he went to i believe he was in the airport in iraq and they assassinated him publicly so if iran were to react to the united states to any kind of provocation if you want to call it that um that would have been the time so from that and given iran's internal struggles that they've had going on now for decades i don't get the impression they're looking to really go to war but again we're looking at the american reason for coming here with these with these aircraft carriers so other reasons well they want to defend us from yemen and other other areas but again that that is not it's also a redundant power as we've seen saudi arabia and jordan they have the ability to, to knock down uh, anything that yemen is 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 shooting at us so what what are they what is it here for um and i think we have to look a little bit more globally to, to start to answer this question um the main reason i would say is the, the main audience for this is china within one week the united states showed that they can move mobilize two aircraft carriers across the world and all the resources that go with it now china has two maybe three I don't know, three aircraft carriers in its entire fleet i would say that one of the messages not only one message but one of the messages that the benefit that the benefits that, that um uh, the United States saw here was an ability to send a message to China to say, listen, if necessary, if you decide to make any action against Taiwan within one week, we can move enough firepower to directly challenge you. So that I would say is one element. A second element, again, looking more broadly, is, is Russia. Russia over the past, I would say, since the Obama administration has really taken a foothold in the Middle East. Um, that's clear. And one element here is the Biden administration, the United States trying to reestablish its superiority uh, in the Middle East as the superpower of the world. Now, of course, you'll say, wait, Ariel, well, I think you forgot about Gaza. This is not what we're talking about. So, yes, there is there is, of course, uh, uh, an element of Gaza, but I don't think it's to to defend Israel from Gaza. Uh, I don't think like we said, that's a redundant power. It's not a necessary power. Um, I would imagine if I could if I could sit in the White House and, and see the discussions that they had that day, uh, they maybe woke up uh, uh, Joe and they said, hey, Joe, you have to hear what's going on. Uh, X, Y, Z showed him a few pictures and they said, oh, my goodness, Bibi is going to flatten Gaza and we can't have that uh, for, for a whole number of reasons that can't be. But nonetheless, what did they respond? And I think it's a pretty ingenious response that they, they did do, which is, uh, I would say, almost like a, a mafia style coming in. They partnered with Bibi. And not that Bibi was unwilling. Now, the first day, Bibi's phone calls were directly to Biden. But they partnered with Bibi and said, Bibi, we're going to be your partner. We're going to send you everything you need, and we're coming with you. Now, of course, we don't really need them to go into Gaza for, for the sake of the, the military uh, approach. But what they've really done is come and they've they've tied our hands. Now, it's a little bit less than I expected. I expected to have uh, the Americans be able to tie Bibi's hands a little bit more than they have. And so far, he's he seemed to have resisted it. So there's the Gaza element. Now, back to Bibi. He completely, it seems to me, understands what his the threats are. And when it was, it was not too long ago, when there was a transition of power here in Israel um, to Bennett, Bibi gave two warnings. 
he said pretty much, it was in the Knesset, and he said, you have to worry about these two things. First of all, he said, worry about Iran. And he gave a whole slew of reasons, we don't have to go through them, it's pretty obvious. And the second one he said, was you have to be able to have the courage, like I did, and the strength to stand up to American pressure. So Bibi fully gets all of this. And he's been going through it and has been managing it seemingly fairly well so far. But again, we can't assess anything midway through because we don't know what the results will be. And then uh, what I also wanted to touch on there is why? Why does Bibi have to capitulate to this? But I'll, I'll, I'll pause for a second in case you want to jump in, Yehuda or Lizzie, because I know I'm going on. Well, no, I, I have one question about something that you mentioned earlier, that from the American perspective, the concern is that Bibi is going to flatten Gaza. And I understand that there's some problems with the optics for the U.S. and maybe some backlash. But at the end of the day, the Americans are much more concerned about Israel retaking Gaza. I think that's a far greater American concern right now than us killing Palestinians or Palestinians. Well, I, I would actually just interject here. I mean, I definitely think that's a part of it, but I would also say that there's an added element to this, which is that America, it's curious to see like how, where America's interests lie in this whole thing and how that's going to play out with them. And, and also how that affects Israel. Like, should we be happy or should we be excited that America's here seemingly to support us when I'm not really so sure that their presence here is actually helpful for us if they're going to drag in all of these other actors like Russia and China into this conflict just based on their presence here. Uh, that's, a, that's a good point. Uh, Russia and China, for example, uh, they have had their own issues, as we all know, and they don't show really any restraint when they deal with the, when they have dealt with those issues by any means. So frankly, Russia and China, I don't see them really caring much about Gaza. What they do care about, which is exactly what you've said, they've brought in because Israel has so closely aligned itself in this case with the United States, subservient to the United States, um, as opposed to being a friend of the United States. And and in this case, because of the way that things are, everything is, of course, very polarized. Um, China and Russia have said, OK, if you have decided that you are with the United States, therefore you cannot be with me. Right. So that's why we have some of the, the strongest rhetoric from Russia and from China that we've heard um, against Israel, mainly because exactly what you said, we've aligned so closely with the United States. Correct. And I, and I think they honestly, the way that America is handling their business right now is probably facing more towards them than it is to even towards their own public opinion within their own countries, because I think they're kind of hiding a lot of what's actually going on in the geopolitical sphere from Americans. I don't know that they're giving them the full picture of the situation that America's in, because U.S. bases in the Middle East have kind of been under attack. We can debate the scale of that, but definitely Iran's been showing action against them. And the U.S. has come out several times saying, you know, if this action continues, we're going to respond really strongly. And their response has been like just basically blowing up sand. Um, and so China and Russia are definitely taking note of this mm -hmm. and the potential for this conflict to snowball and have even more actors get involved. Um, is partially based on Israel's own actions, but it's also partially based on, like you said, our relationship to America, um, which kind of puts us in an unfavorable situation because we might get into certain conflicts that we would otherwise not find ourselves in had we not had this type of relationship with America. Um, but in terms of America, it's, it's actually kind of difficult to predict what they would want from this situation. Do they actually want to show that they're still this military superpower um, and prove to the world basically that their you know dominance over the globe is just as intact as it ever was? Or do they want to make a strategic retreat and basically allow whatever power shift is going on geopolitically to take place? without actually having a strong response. Um, but it, it'll be very, it's very interesting and kind of hard to predict, you know, what actors are actually going to be involved in this war in the long term. Right. So I, I would say both, both, that Biden would want the former, which is for the United States to retain its power as the world policeman, as has always been, as has often been the case in the past, I don't know, 50 years. Uh, by, the Biden still believes that, but there's a groundswell that don't believe that. So, so what you're saying, yes, yes and yes. I don't know, I, I have to differ a little bit here because I, on the one hand, I don't see any real uh, distinction when it comes to U.S. power. I think whether it's Democrats or Republicans, younger Democrats, older Democrats, 
I think they're all invested in the U.S. imperialist project. I think the oil companies and the weapons companies and the pharmaceutical companies and the, you know, all of these different industries that essentially fund the political campaigns of each candidate and and pour so much money into controlling the, the political class. I just don't see this project winding down, even if somebody like AOC or Elon Omar were to become president. I think that they would just be head of the American war machine. They would just be head of the U.S. empire for four to eight years. And I think that no matter who becomes president of the United States, no matter what they sound like before they assume office, they are going to be fighting to maintain U.S. dominance on the international stage. They want to keep the United States as the world's sole unipolar superpower. And, uh, and, and also they will try to impose a two-state solution on the state of Israel on, to divide our land into two separate states. Um, because it's, you know, from a broader historical perspective, also related to our Parsha, you know, Esav and Yaakov and the historical conflict between their two civilizations, um, the rebirth of Israel as the children of Israel on the stage of history in the modern world is a threat to Western civilization. Meaning Israel can exist as a bomb shelter for Jews funded by the Americans, as an extension of American power, as an outpost of the West in West Asia, but not as an independent country with its own culture, its own values, you know, in biblical Israel. Right, that's very true. Um, it's partially one of the reasons why I think it would serve Israel very well to start um, really thinking about what kind of future we're setting up for ourselves and who our allies in the future are really going to be because I don't know how long we can maintain this like nice or I mean nice in certain perspectives I, I definitely think there's also exploitative elements to it but just this like free-flowing support from America I don't know I feel like there's kind of a clock on that there's uh, an expiration date on that but based on what you're saying you know just for us to think for ourselves you know like what's the future of our defense industry gonna look like what's the future of our foreign relations going to look like um, these are real questions we need to ask and um, in, in that vein, uh, actually before Semcha Torah, we were on route to normalization with Saudi Arabia. And I'm curious if you think that now, as a result of this war, that's dead. Um, the possibility for an agreement with Saudi Arabia is, you know, gone. Or do you think it could still happen? Uh, I think it can completely still happen and it most likely will happen. The and, and how do we know this? What do we see that leads us to believe this? Um, so again, we'll go back to to Bibi. Um, he has been around a long time. He's now he's over 70 years old. And at this point, he is thinking, as he should, as, as we would understand, about his legacy. What will his legacy be? Will he be the prime minister who shepherded Israel through decades, gave us a strong economy and kept relative peace, which would be wonderful. It was a very, seems like a very nice uh, addition to his resume. But even more so, will his legacy be as the prime minister who ended the Middle East war? And in essence, normalization with Saudi Arabia, everyone has said, is ending the Middle East war. And I think that is very, very high on Bibi's list, uh, uh, on to-do list. And probably, I would say, maybe his, his, his top priority. And I would say that why. Bibi has been begging Biden for a meeting, as we've all seen in the press, publicly begging him to come, to invite him, to have even a phone call. What do we need all this for, right? Bibi, as we said earlier, understands the U.S. threat, and I put that in quotes, as he mentioned to Bennett. So Bibi is, again, rushing to Biden because Biden is going to be the key for normalization with Saudi Arabia. And that is what is going to give Bibi his legacy. And because Saudi Arabia really doesn't care, I, it's, to say frankly, I don't think they're on their top priority list the, is, is the Palestinians. I don't think it's up there. I think a lot of the Arab world thinks the Palestinians have had their chance. They lost their chance. They have to, we want them to just keep, keep quiet already. And now with the resurgency of an, an Islamic extremist groups doing something that so publicly tarnishes uh, uh, Islam in their, in, in, the mind, in their minds, forget it. They, they've had enough with this. Saudi Arabia will be, would be very happy to come to terms with Israel and push aside the Palestinians. I think that's been, been in the media before, before the war started. But from Bibi's perspective, this seems like it's going to happen inevitably. But it would really be, again, from Bibi's perspective, a real shame 
if he put 20 years into this, made all of these relations, put Israel onto the world stage, and then his successor goes ahead and is the one who signs the deal who's going to end the Middle East crisis. I, I want to relate to something you said earlier. I think when it comes to the socio-political shifts in American society today, um, that's inevitable. I think in general, we could all agree that the left drives the trajectory of the United States, uh, at least uh, in terms of what's politically correct. I think uh, in our lifetimes, we've seen many issues change in terms of where the public was holding. Uh, I think we, we've seen that with Israel as well. Um, now, it's ironic that one of the ways a lot of Israel supporters try to frame the situation here, and I think we've seen this even you know, in the beginning of this war, um, this idea of Israel being on the side of civilization against the savages, you know, Israel as an outpost of American power. At the end of the day, the irony is, we, if we want the next generation of politically active Americans to be supportive of Israel, we have to fundamentally change what Israel is. Like Israel, I think, needs to make a conscious decision, not, not for PR reasons, not for Hasbara reasons, but really in terms of living up to our true identity and our destiny here. Um, Israel needs to align itself with the oppressed of the world and not the oppressors. I think if we were to do that, we would obviously be distancing ourselves significantly from the U.S. and from U.S. regional interests here. But at the same time, I think the next generation of Americans would have a much friendlier attitude towards Americans than they currently do. Uh, that's a inter very interesting idea, but I, I would I would question then. The Israel is a world power in so many different areas, well, whether it's military, whether it's technology. Um, how would we then frame ourselves to be the oppressed? Not to be the oppressed, although we could argue that th there is such a thing as Jewish oppression today and Israel falls into the trap of systemic anti-Semitism on an international stage. But I'll let uh, listeners check out our short cartoons on how systemic anti-Semitism works to learn about that. But I think that what I'm speaking about now is not necessarily to be oppressed. And obviously, you know, with whatever power we've accumulated for ourselves over the last century, we should prevent our own oppression and the oppression of our people abroad. But to be on the side of the oppressed, like Israel, to be a revolutionary actor on the world stage that fights against injustice. Like, I would like to see Israel as the champion of the oppressed on the world stage, but as the children of Israel meaning not as some like liberal white ally showing up to a BLM demonstration, but as the children of Israel with our own identity, our own interests, uh, and our own vision for the world is showing up for all of those marginalized and suppressed by the current order. And in many cases, I think this would bring us into direct conflict with the United States and its allies. Mm. So to touch on that, it, it's, it, you reminded me of a very interesting uh, topic that about the anti-Semitism that we see, yes, individually in countries and cities, but also in, in terms of how this conflict is framed. So, for example, when we see, again, I'll go back to the Gulf War, right, when I, when, when I was uh, growing up and we heard terms such as shock and awe and we heard terms such as collateral damage. Now, what was collateral damage in those days? That was civilian casualties, but it was it was termed very differently, right? We heard, heard carpet bombs. Carpet bombs meaning, I guess it's it's kind of intuitive what it says, where you just flatten everything in front of you. And this was heading into the to the Gulf War. People were screaming, rah, 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 let's go. Right now, I understand that was a different time, a different place. Um, but just to put it into perspective. Now, also what we hear about is communal punishment, communal punishment to Gaza and to different areas. Now, when we have, for example, sanctions against Venezuela, sanctions against Cuba for decades, for generations, sanctions against Russia, right? It's not just when we say sanctions, that means people are dying because they're not getting their medicines. Now, when we have all of those sanctions, where is the screaming of communal punishment? I, I don't hear the same, the same surprise and, and uprising by these same camps who were the first ones to scream, oh, it's not fair, why are you punishing everybody? Well, I think there are certainly a lot of voices on the left trying to speak up for Cuba. Um, and Cuba is a great example, by the way, because when there are votes in the United Nations to continue the blockade on Cuba, the only two nations to vote in favor of continuing the blockade are the United States and Israel, meaning even Zelensky, you know, America's Ukrainian puppet, he abstains. 
Even uh, Bolsonaro, when he was uh, leading Brazil, he abstained. Israel is the only country at the UN, other than the US, that vote to continue the blockade of Cuba. Now, why should we do that? Why should we Why should we be that, you know, on the world stage? Why should we fall into that trap of middle-aged oppressor to try and present ourselves or, or allow ourselves to be trapped in this world of like the Robin to America's Batman uh, when we can be the children of Israel? And we can actually, maybe we can find ourselves on the side of Cuba, you know, if things are different. Um, but really to be an actor that fights for justice around the world and tries to make the world what the creator intended it to be. Step number one to doing that is actually Israel as a country re-envisioning what, what our foreign policy looks like and who our allies are and how we conduct those relationships and on, on what basis. Um, and that's why earlier when we were talking about the Saudi normalization, um, you know, it's been really interesting to watch a lot of these Arab countries that we have recently formed relationships with and how they're reacting to this war. Because honestly, in the past, the condemnation from the Arab world was a lot stronger and a lot more vocal and a lot more aggressive than it is now. But you see that the, the countries that have normalized with Israel that do have ties with us are actually, you know, making moves to kind of both sides this issue in a fashion that's not been seen like before up until this point. I think they genuinely do enjoy the relationships that they have with us. I know that it was the US that facilitated um, signing these agreements in the first place, but I do think that the connection with these countries runs a lot deeper than that. Um, and I think Saudi sees that and that's partially why as much as the American incentives are driving their desire to normalize with Israel, I do think it's bigger than that, I think that there is some genuine recognition that, you know, Israel's here to stay and they, these Arab nations do share a lot in common with us and they have real like material benefits to having a relationship with us. Um, and I'm hoping that if Israel is able to set its sights on forging better relationships with our immediate neighbors, theoretically, we could actually be in a better position to side with the oppressed of the world or act as a revolutionary force based on relationships that are built out of mutual interest versus exploitation. Right. And the, and the truth is that brings us to the question of whether or not we should even want a relationship with Saudi Arabia, just based on the way the Saudi royal family treats its people. Is that who we want to be friends with? Or, or even the United States? Like, Do I want a relationship with the United States before it fixes what it's done to its own indigenous population and to the Africans it kidnapped and slaves. I think it's really hard to find any single nation on this planet that doesn't have their shortcomings in terms of human rights and the way that affairs are run in their country, including the one we live in, including Israel. We have our own issues in terms of how we understand and deal with these things. So none of us are perfect, but I do think that the basis for relationships should not be, you know, one country literally dominating the other. It should be, uh, you know, a certain country is, is able to like influence each other in ways that that benefits their own society. So I think if we are, for instance, able to self-reflect on our treatment of human rights, then we can demand of our allies that they do the same if that's the path that we're on. Right. It has to be this exchange, but it can't just be, you know, one guy telling another, this is how you have to run your internal domestic affairs or else we're going to, you know, cut our entire relationship off. I, I think Israel, I think the Jewish people suffer from a lot of traumatic persecution. And I think we fell into the trap while in exile, especially Ashkenazim in, in Europe, of trying to make ourselves as useful as possible to the most powerful Gentile around. That was how we survived in many European countries for centuries. And that often forced us into conflict with the non-Jewish uh, oppressed populations of those areas, uh, because we would, be, um, we would be making ourselves useful to the powerful oppressive Gentile. And I think we've just kind of fallen into that trap on a international level on the world stage by allowing ourselves to be the you know, regional attack dog of the Americans, or at least be perceived that way. Yeah. Right. Uh, so, so, so what we know, of course, as as the Gullis mentality, um, after thousands of years, two thousand years of living in someone else's house and requesting permission and keeping a low profile, it becomes extremely difficult to then come and assert yourself as the balabait, as the as the homeowner, as the boss. Uh, and I think we see that 
particularly with those of us who were born um, in, in Galut, in, in exile. And, but we also see it for those who were born here. And I think we see it often in, in Israeli culture. And I'll give you a little story where I have uh, some distant cousins. And I remember it was during Eurovision. And Israel made it to, I don't know, the finals or some, some high place in Eurovision. And one of my cousins said, wrote on the WhatsApp group, wow, we're finally on the map. And I remember thinking, no, we have been the map for centuries. We've always been the map. But I think that's that, that Galut mentality is something that takes takes time to, to, to break um, and, and would be very, very, very difficult to, to suddenly change. But I would say that part of Israel coming back to life in the modern age is to be able to create answers for a lot of the major social and political questions and challenges of the modern era. But, you know, not to accept the liberal Western answers, but to really formulate real Hebrew answers deeply rooted in our culture and identity that could compete with the liberal Western answers on their own ideological turf. And I think right now in Israeli society, a lot of the arguments taking place around these type of issues are whether or not we're going to accept or reject the liberal Western answers to these questions. And ultimately, what I would like to see is for at least the sector of Israeli society more deeply connected to our roots, to our identity, to our history, to our culture, to our Torah, to the worldview of our, our prophets and sages, to actually formulate real solutions and answers that could work in a society like ours and perhaps even other societies as well, but that can also compete with those liberal Western answers on their own turf. And that's part of the project. I think it's one of the next stages of this project of the people of Israel coming back to life. I completely agree with that statement. I think it's definitely a journey and definitely also a larger, broader conversation that could probably keep us on here for another hour. Um, hmm. But this is probably a natural stopping point. Um, I want to thank you, Ariel, for coming on and sharing your really valuable insights to our listeners. One final question, Ariel. If you had to guess, really on one foot. What do you think the U.S. interest is in Israel's war against Hamas? What would they like to see as the ideal outcome here? Uh, on one foot, I would have to say, aside from their international elements, meaning Russia, China, those, those which are kind of bonuses for them, I think they want to see pretty much status quo uh, after the war and then heading into the two-state solution, uh, coupled with a deal with Saudi Arabia. I think the American ideal, again, even that saying the American ideal is tough to say, but I think that their general long-term goal and their ideal solution from this would be to remove Hamas from the entire uh, calculation. They're resorting to, again, by default, because there's no one else, to the Palestinian Authority coming in, which would, again, uh, have a deal coming together with Saudi Arabia and make um, one big, nice, happy ending. Mm -hmm. So in terms of Israel's war aim of obliterating Hamas, the United States is on board. Yes, I would agree that they're on board to eliminate Hamas. And they have made and, and we have copied a very, very delicate effort to distinguish between Hamas and Gaza. And I think that's, that's how the narrative was framed very early to say that there is Hamas and then there is Gaza. Uh, to get into that is a whole other story, but that's, that's how it's been framed. And I think with that goal in mind is that if Hamas were to be removed, uh, the Palestinian Authority is all of a sudden a very, very friendly element to be um, shepherding this new two-state solution in. Again, not, not my opinion, but my, my view of what the American goal would be, as, as you, you asked. Right, so as we say here, Halila. <laughs> all right. Thank you so much for your time. It was a pleasure having you on the show. Thank you, Yehuda. Thank you, Lizzie. Um, and I do want to end, if I may, on a positive note, because a lot of what we said here, I, I know that the listeners will say, oh my goodness, really, this sounds like very harsh, very difficult, but we should have to put it into perspective, like we said earlier, is that we are facing now, yes, we are in war, and yes, we had casualties, and yes, we had atrocities, but again, relative to previous wars that we've had uh, in previous years, we faced armies that had tanks and armies that had airplanes, and here we have complete superiority in terms of intelligence, in terms of military power, in every sense. So really, the situation that we are in as a nation and as a country is, in the scheme of things, in a positive trajectory. We should be very, very happy about that. I think you're totally right. And I also think, you know, unlike the past few wars that we fought with Gaza, 
Israel really does seem motivated and rightfully so to finally take care of this situation that's been plaguing us for a very long time. And I'm hopeful that the future that's going to emerge from this entire situation is going to be a very bright one for, for the nation of Israel. Amen. Well, thank you so much for being with us. Thank Go you ahead. for having me. All right. This is Lizzie Oziel. This is Yudha Cohen. And you're listening to The Next Stage Podcast. <laughs> If you're interested in checking out the show notes to this episode, you can go to visionmag.org backslash the next stage 109.